Welcome to our continuing 2019 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Patricia Clendenning with us today. Patricia is a global professional in human resources and a senior professional in human resources. She recently achieved SHRM SCP and was the first in Delaware with this competency-based certification. She has over 30 years of experience in human resources management and with major corporations, including Train, Ingersoll Rand, Allied Signal, Honeywell, Crothwell American, Wolf D. Barth, and Wawa Incorporated. She has held a variety of coaching, change management, strategic planning, training and development, and employee relations roles within these organizations. Trisha was the recipient of Associated Builders and Contractors Associate Supplier of the Year Award, Delaware Valley Human Resources Consultant of the Year Award, Ron Chain HR Lifetime Achievement Award, and a finalist for the 2018 HR Person of the Year Award. In addition, she meets with the legislatures in Dover and was instrumental in Delaware's new harassment prevention legislation. She regularly spends time on Capitol Hill and was invited to participate in Delaware's Business Leader Roundtable with presidential candidate Mitt Romney. Throughout career, Trisha's career, she has been a catalyst for the community, community relations and has contributed her time to many nonprofit organizations. She has been singled out by her cl clients for her ability to identify and analyze the developmental needs for the, for the leaders she coaches while understanding the impact of their business issues. She works effectively and collaboratively with her clients to diagnose issues and offers potential solutions and support chosen recommendations. During times of change, transition, and growth, Trisha maintains a results-oriented focus. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We'll address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the side panel of your screen. So, Tricia, a warm welcome. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you and your members to provide how to navigate the ever-changing anti-harassment regulations. So as Catherine had shared, um, I do have a little bit of HR experience and I'm hoping my experience and history will provide some value to you and your organization as you navigate these ever-changing uh, legislation and, and laws around anti-harassment and sexual harassment prevention. 
So today's objectives are really to gain an understanding of the new regulations, gain an understanding of an employer's responsibilities regarding the prevention and correction of harassment, and understanding the legal prohibition against retaliation and ensure that companies are in compliance with these new regulations. The following laws prohibit discrimination and harassment on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, including pregnancy, national origin, age, which is 40 or older, disability or genetic information, and also prohibits employers from retaliating against an employee who complains of employment discrimination or harassment or participates in a related investigation or lawsuit. State and local anti-discrimination laws may extend protection to groups of employees who are not protected under the federal law. Sexual orientation and marital status are common examples of categories afforded protection under state and or local anti-discrimination laws, but not under federal laws. State laws may also prohibit discrimination and harassment on the basis of gender identity or gender expression. As another example, the New York State Human Rights Law prohibits discrimination because of an employee's domestic violence victim status. In one area of recent activity, some states have enacted prohibitions against discrimination based on an individual's past or current unemployment status. To meet their uh, compliance obligations under both state and federal equal employment opportunity laws, employers' anti-discrimination policies should not only prohibit commonly understood forms of discrimination, but should also explain that the employer's anti-discrimination policies will apply with equal force to each category of employees protected by federal, state, or local EEO laws. In other words, there should be a catch-all provision to the effect that the employer does not discriminate against employees on any other basis prohibited by federal, state, or local law. Having this language will not only help ensure that all protected employees are covered within the employer's policies, but it will also minimize the need for constant revision or modification to their policies. We also need to keep in mind that multi-state employers must be knowledgeable of state and local EEO laws and any developments in those laws that will affect their organization. An effective, easily understood policy is critical for an employer to establish it exercise reasonable care to prevent unlawful harassment. Our recommendation is that the policy should generally include a clear explanation and examples of prohibited conduct, a clearly described and accessible complaint procedure, which includes the ability for an employee to bring complaints to more than one person, an assurance of confidentiality to the best extent possible, consistent within the applicable laws. 
and assurance of immediate and appropriate corrective action when discrimination or harassment has occurred, and a statement of protection against retaliation for an employee who brings forth a complaint of discrimination or harassment. As a matter of best practices, employers should foster a work culture in which employees demonstrate professional courtesy toward colleagues and employees and are encouraged to speak up if they see any form of discriminatory behavior in the workplace. Doing so will not only protect employers from liability, but will also improve your workplace dynamics. It's important to promote an open door policy. If you're not aware of what the issues or concerns are, you can't fix the problems that people are afraid to talk to someone about. Employers operating in certain states must also grapple with these emerging trends. Sexual harassment prevention training requirements, broad equal pay protections, accommodations for pregnant employees or employees who are victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, or stalking, protections for LGBT persons and state religious freedom laws, and employment protections for unpaid interns and homeless individuals. The next few slides will show some of the recent changes that you will see across the country. Um, in Arizona, under House Bill 2020, victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment would be allowed to break non-disclosure agreements without penalty when communi communicating with law enforcement or in court proceedings. The bill also prohibits the use of taxpayer money to be used by Arizona public officials to settle sexual harassment or sexual misconduct claims. In California, uh, they've expanded the pool of professionals who may find themselves as named defendants in sexual harassment lawsuits. They've increased the statute of limitations for such claims to be commenced. They've lowered a, a plaintiff's burden of proof in such lawsuits. They require extensive sexual harassment training for employees. They prohibit non-disclosure language in settlement agreements where the language precludes employees from disclosing factual information pertaining to sexual harassment where action has been filed in a court of law or administrative agency. And they've also made it unenforceable for non-disclosure language contained in settlement agreements regarding alleged criminal conduct or sexual harassment in administrative, legislative, or judicial proceedings. Delaware has recently joined um, the uh, states that have significant changes. And in Delaware, it covers all um, uh, Delaware employers with four or more employees in the state. It expressly includes the state government and its agencies, the Delaware General Assembly and labor organizations. It expands the type of workers covered by the DDEA, state employees, unpaid interns, job applicants, joint employees, and apprentices. 
It requires the State Department of Labor to create an information sheet for employers to distribute. And the employers must give this information sheet to all new employees on their start date. And any of their existing employees must receive it by July 1st of 2019. They also have mandated employers with at least 50 employees in the state to provide interactive training and education to employees regarding the prevention of sexual harassment. Maryland's uh, changes uh, went into effect on October 1st of 2018. Maryland's new law designed to prevent employers from asking employees to waive their future right to report sexual harassment um, went into effect. Under the law, disclosing sexual harassment in the Workplace Act of 2018, which was HB 1596, for those that want to look it up, Maryland employers with 50 or more employees will be prohibited from taking adverse action against employees because they fail or refuse to enter into agreements that contain a waiver of sexual harassment claims, including provisions requiring them to resolve future sexual harassment and retaliation claims through arbitration. In addition, the law requires that on or before July 1st of 2020, uh, that the covered employers must complete a survey for the Maryland Commission on Civil Rights that discloses the following information. The number of settlements entered into by or on behalf of the employer after an employee made a sexual harassment allegation. The number of times the employer paid settlement to resolve a sexual harassment allegation against the same employee over the past 10 years. And number of settlements after sexual harassment allegation that included a provision requiring both parties to keep the settlement terms confidential. When an employer submits the survey to the MCCR, there will be a space for it to report whether it took employment action against the employee who was subject of the settlement disclosed in the survey. The MCCR will publish it on its website, the aggregate number of responses from employers for each of the three categories. Upon request, the commission may disclose a specific employer's response about the number of times it's paid a settlement to resolve sexual harassment allegations against the same employee over the past 10 years. So I don't know um, how all of you may feel, but I certainly would not want my organization's uh, information to be out there for the world to see. Um, it may really prohibit people, people from wanting to join your organization once this information becomes public. So let's talk about New York for a minute. So, you know, first, the, the scope of the New York State Human Rights Law was expanded to provide protection against sexual harassment to non-employees, including contractors, subcontractors, vendors, consultants, and others who provide services under a contract. Second, New York law now forbids employers from requiring employees to submit their sexual harassment claims to mandatory arbitration. Third, New York employers are now generally prohibited from including non-disclosure provisions in any settlements related to sexual harassment claims. So we're seeing this trend in a number of different states. 
The change will likely have the biggest impact on New York employers. Um, is it starting this previous October 9th, all New York employers are required to adopt a written sexual harassment policy and conduct annual trainings for all employees, not just supervisors, which must be interactive. The New York Department of Labor and Division of Human Rights have published a model sexual harassment policy and training program, which both can be located at the um, New York State Model Policy and New York State Model Training, and those links are available. Um, employers may either adopt the model policy and training program or produce one on their own that equals or exceeds the minimum standards in the model program. The Tennessee Code 50-1-108 prohibits employers from requiring an employee or prospective employee to sign or renew a non-disclosure agreement regarding sexual harassment in the workplace as a condition of employment. The law applies to NDAs executed or renewed after May 15th of 2018. In the event an employer terminates an employee for refusing to sign an NDA regarding sexual harassment and therefore violating the statute, the employee may have grounds to claim retaliatory discharge under Tennessee Code 50-1-304. According to the source, it's not clear what remedy a prospect employee would have if not hired because of refusing to sign an NDA. Let's talk about Vermont for a moment. H707, AKA an act relating to the prevention of sexual harassment went into effect on Jan uh, July 1st of 2018 and enacts extensive and some groundbreaking protections for employees and prospective employees. The act applies to anyone hired to perform work or services and therefore covers all employees, including contractors, and unpaid interns. Similar to NDA legislation in other states, H707 effectively prohibits employment agreements that require claims of sexual harassment to be resolved through arbitration. Among other provisions, the Act directs the development of an outreach program to establish a hotline and web reporting system to report complaints of sexual harassment directly to the Vermont Human Rights Commission of the AG's office. Effective as of June 7th of 2018, three new Washington state laws are intended to protect targets of sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace. Disclosure and Discussion of Sexual Harassment and Assault, which was SB 5996, prohibits the signing of non-disclosure agreements regarding sexual harassment or sexual assault as a prerequisite for employment. This applies to those behaviors at work, work-related events, whether they're coordinated by the company or employees, and between employee and employer off-premises. Law barring mandatory private dispute resolution, which was SB 6313, 
voids the ability to enforce contracts or agreements that waive an employee's rights to publicly file complaints regarding sexual harassment and sexual assault. And the third um, model policies, SB 6471, was designed to encourage the adoption and implementation of policies that create a safer working environment that eliminates retaliation and fear of status or opportunity repercussions. Employers in a growing number of states are required to provide sexual harassment prevention training to employees and managers or supervisors. Although the goal of the laws is the same, the requirements of each vary and may pose a compliance challenge to employers with offices in multiple jurisdictions. For example, California law requires supervisor training for employers with at least 50 employees and mandates that supervisors be specifically trained on the prevention of harassment based on gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. California also requires that the training be interactive, such as through classroom training, computer-based e-learning training, or a webinar. In contrast, Maine requires employers with 15 or more employees to conduct training for all new employees within one year of the commencement of employment. Maine requires additional instruction for supervisors and mandates that specific topics be covered in various training. Multi-state employers must ensure that employees in states that require sexual harassment training receive the appropriate instruction and comply with each jurisdiction's content, delivery, and timing requirements. In addition to the states that mandate such training, example, California, Connecticut, Maine, New York, many other states encourage it. For example, Massachusetts encourages employers with six or more employees to train new employees on sexual harassment and discrimination prevention and provides supervisor training programs. With other laws set um, that have become effective in 2019, such as Delaware, who, as I had stated earlier, became effective January 1st of 2019, and then New York City and New York, which are, are coming into play as far as their training effective April 1st, employers must be aware of this growing trend with an eye toward compliance in every jurisdiction. Additionally, several states require employers to adopt and distribute a written anti-harassment policy. As with the training requirements, the policy requires vary among jurisdictions. In Massachusetts and Rhode Island, for example, covered employers must provide employees with a written copy of the employer's policy. That includes, among other things, a description and examples of sexual harassment. California, however, requires an anti-harassment policy that covers all of the categories protected by their state law. 
Because of the variety of written policy requirements, again, employers must be aware of the specific requirements in each jurisdiction in which they have employees. So the following slides we will go through and it will provide you with an overview of the training requirements that are mandated by state. So in Arizona, um, they're not required. It's advisable for employers to conduct harassment training. California, employers must train their employees on issues of sexual harassment. Connecticut, provide training to supervisory employees and has a detailed procedure for sexual harassment training for employees. In Delaware, as we shared a few moments ago, employers with 50 or more employees must provide interactive training every two years for employees and supervisors. The District of Columbia, covered employers will be required to educate employees with respect to sexual harassment issues. In Florida, uh, they require certain employees in regulated pro uh, professions to receive training. Illinois public employees must be educated with respect to sexual harassment issues. In Iowa, certain state employees must be educated with respect to sexual harassment issues. In Maine, employers with 15 or more employees must provide sexual harassment training to all employees within the first year of their employment. In Massachusetts, they require employers to have sexual harassment policy in place and strongly encourages sexual harassment training. The state of Montana, um, as an employer, must provide anti-harassment training to all new employees. And in Nevada, public employees must receive training with respect to sexual harassment issues. In the state of New York, an employer will be required to educate employees with respect to sexual harassment issues. And then the new, um, in the uh, city of New York, uh, they also have different requirements. In Pennsylvania, public employees must be educated with respect to sexual harassment issues. And in Rhode Island, they encourage employers to educate employees with respect to sexual harassment issues. Moving to Texas, employees of state agencies must be educated with respect to discrimination issues and should also consider additional training to prevent unlawful activities in the workplace. In Utah, uh, decisions from Utah federal judges emphasize the importance of regular training regarding discrimination and harassment. And Washington State public employees must be educated with respect to sexual harassment. So the information that we've shared on the state training requirements, that's what it is as of today. That doesn't mean that tomorrow that is going to be accurate. So it's really important to stay apprised of what changes are going on in your local jurisdiction. So let's talk for a few moments about management's role when we are discussing harassment prevention. It is critical for everyone to ensure that your anti-harassment policies are in compliance with your local jurisdiction 
um, that it is communicated throughout, and that they are posted in a place that everyone has access to them within your organization. It's really important to ensure that all staff are trained on a regular basis, if applicable. So what I want to say here, it's, it may not be mandated by your local jurisdiction or your state, but it's the right thing to do, to train people, educate them, to make sure that they understand what their role is, whether they're in a supervisory role or an employee role, and how they need to move forward. It's really important as a manager that we conduct workplace inspections or audits, if you will, take you know, a walk through the organization, see if there's anything you know, hanging or posted in someone's cubicle, work area, in their office, in the warehouse, in wherever, that could be offensive to someone if they were to see it. You know, it could be a coffee mug with a statement on it that may be inappropriate in the workplace. It's fine to have those things in your home, but not in the workplace. And as an employer, you have every right to determine what can be used or posted in the workplace. It's really important that if someone brings a concern or a complaint to you, that you promptly respond to those complaints. Don't think by putting it off, it's going to go away because it doesn't. It snowballs. It's important to do um, full impartial investigations and to document everything as you go through the process. Of course, we always want to take whatever action we can to resolve any problems. And oftentimes, we may not be the right person to either do the investigation or know how to manage through the process. So consult an HR expert or legal counsel for guidance. You don't have to do this alone. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what happens if you receive a complaint? What's next? It's critical that you investigate what happened. You talk with the complainant and the alleged harasser. You interview witnesses. You may want to contact an outside investigator, uh, investigator for impartiality or expertise if needed, especially if you've never done this before. It would be best to bring in a, a subject matter expert that can do this and maybe you can shadow them so that you can learn how to do it. Um, oftentimes using um, an outside person uh, will help the process, add more credibility to it because it's not someone that is part of the company that is doing it. And sometimes you'll be able to get through it a lot more quickly and everyone will feel better about the outcome. When you are talking to people, you do commit to confidentiality. Um, and you know, not that you can't share anything with anyone because it's on a need to know basis. You have to have conversations in order to investigate, but it will only be those people that need to be involved that will know what's going on. You should also counsel all, in, all of the individuals that are involved in the investigation that they need to keep it confidential. We don't want someone's credibility or reputation to be tarnished as a result of an unfounded allegation, right? We ask them not to discuss things among themselves. We also need to let everyone know 
it doesn't matter who they are, that they cannot retaliate in any way, shape, or form. Um, as far as retaliation is concerned, you know, it's not always something significant. It could be that someone just doesn't talk to that individual anymore. It could be when that individual walks in the room, everyone stops talking. These are forms of retaliation, starting rumors uh, about that individual. It can be construed as a form of retaliation. So it's really important that people understand, not only should it be against your company policy, but it is against the law to retaliate. So again, the next steps would be to find the witnesses and interview them. Um, search for any evidence that you can. Um, it's amazing what we can find as far as electronically, you know, whether it's emails or notes or photos, um, social media. Um, you know, often people think, well, if I delete it, it can't be found. We all know that once you delete something or it's, it's put in the trash, it can still be found. So it's important to get IT involved to help uncover any type of evidence that someone may have. Um, you know, it's important to come to a finding. You go through the process to determine whether or not this is a valid allegation. Once you've come to the conclusion, yes, there was a finding or no, there wasn't, it's really important to report back to the parties involved and let them know. Um, if your findings are inconclusive, you need to inform the parties. What many people forget to do is to follow up with the victim later. If, there, if it was a situation of a finding that there was evidence that there, you know, there was some sort of discrimination or harassment of any type, we don't want to forget that the victim may still need some support or help. They may need to be uh, referred to an EAP or just we don't know what happens to the individual once we finish if we don't stay in touch with them. I have conducted many investigations over my, you know, 30 plus years and have often found, you know, yes, there was a finding, it was harassment, the individual was terminated, and then all of a sudden the, the, um, the harasser then continued from a personal standpoint, uh, sending, you know, things through the mail, calling someone at home, uh, stalking them. You want to let the victim know that you are there to support them in any way, shape, or form and help them be able to close that chapter and move forward. So it's really important to monitor the behaviors, see if there's any concerns, touch base with them again to, to make sure that they are okay and are fine with the outcome. As you're going through the investigation, you know, um, some of the questions that need to be answered, was a policy violated? Was a law violated? Um, make sure that you correct any harm. I often ask the um, alleged victim when I interview them in the beginning, you know, what would they like to see as a result of this investigation? What are they hoping for? And sometimes it's something as small as, I just want the behavior to stop and I want that person to apologize. 
And, you know, those are the greatest situations, right? That that's what they're looking for. You're hoping it's not, you know, a lawsuit where they're going to sue for, you know, millions of dollars because that is happening on a regular basis, right? Your next responsibility is to do what you can to prevent future occurrences, you know, which may be anything from separating individuals from where they work. It could be eliminating somebody. It could be, um, you know, uh, sharpening your pencil and revising your policy. It could be by educating your employees on what harassment is and what they're obligated to do and what won't be tolerated. And then one of the things that is really key is as you go through this process, you must document, 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 document everything. Every conversation that you have regarding this, you need to keep notes on, date them, and make sure that you retain them. Because we never know if this is going to come back through another means in the future whether it's local or, or at a federal level. So it's important to retain those documents. So when I talked about how it may come back from another level, um, employees have uh, other reporting options, right? They have other protections. The first one is with the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, also known as the EEOC. And, you know, people are protected under the federal anti-discrimination law. Uh, which we talked about at the beginning of the webinar. And individuals have up to 300 days from the date of an incident to make a formal complaint with the EEOC. It doesn't cost anything for anyone to file a complaint, and it's a pretty easy process. They can call by phone, send an email, or they can go onto their website in order to start the process. So the information is there on your screen. Um, make yourself um, familiar with what that looks like. And in some states, you're required to let your, in, your employees know if they do have um, an allegation of um, harassment, you're obligated to let them know what their other reporting options are. Also, many states have um, alter, alternate reporting options. And we'll talk about those in a second. So the, um, the Fair Employment Practices Agency, otherwise known as FIPA, is a state or local equivalent of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Commission the EEOC. The FIPAs enforce most of the state or local laws prohibiting employment discrimination, harassment, and retaliation within their jurisdiction. So the following slides are the State Fair Employment Practices Agencies. So I'm going to flip through those so that you can see them. Um, they are in alphabetical order. And the phone numbers, the addresses, and their websites are all available by state, again, in alphabetical order. And we've covered all the states. And when a state doesn't have one, which you see for Arkansas, um, they don't have one. So uh, we've included in, in their no FIPA state agency listed. So I hope to goodness that none of you have a need, but you know, this is a great resource for you to have. So on the first one, you see Alabama through DC. And the next slide has Florida through Kentucky. 
and this one has Louisiana through Montana, and you will see that Mississippi does not have a state agency. This slide has Nebraska through North Dakota, and Ohio through South Dakota, Tennessee through West Virginia, and last but not least, Wisconsin and Wyoming. So I want to thank everyone for taking the time to gain a better understanding of navigating the ever-changing anti-harassment regulations. And if anyone has any questions, I would be happy to answer them. Okay, Trisha, thank you so much. Uh, I have a few questions here. Um, the first one is, uh, can companies be fined or are there penalties for not being in compliance? Oh, that's a great question, Catherine. Um, unfortunately, yes, there are fines and penalties depending on the state or the local municipality. It's really important to have policies and processes in place to protect your employees and your companies not just to prevent your organization from being fined. And the fines, um, you know, they vary depending on the location. Okay, thank you. Sure. So, um, all right, the next one is, how can I be sure that my company's policy is in compliance with the state's anti-harassment requirements? So that's a, another great question, Catherine. Um, you know, we have provided the Fair Employment Practices Agency, otherwise known as a FIPA, contact information on the slides for all of the states that have them. I would really encourage everyone to go onto their affiliated FIPA website to learn about the current requirements that their organization needs to comply with, as well as reviewing the, overall, um, the overview that we provided during this webinar. Having a relationship with either an HR consultant or an employment, employment attorney can be another resource that can guide organizations in ensuring their compliance. Okay, great, great advice. Okay, so um, do states conduct audits to find out if a company is in compliance with these regulations? Yes, indeed they do. They absolutely do conduct audits. Um, most often, unfortunately, it's a result of an employee making an allegation against a person or an organization for practices they feel are in violation. Once the allegation is made and either the FIPA or the EEOC feel that there is some merit, then the ball starts rolling and includes an audit of the organization's policies and practices. Okay, and we have one other question here. It's what resources are available to help us navigate the changes and make sure that we are in compliance? Once again, I would recommend a relationship with either an HR consultant or an employment attorney to assist any organization with their uh, compliance needs. Definitely utilize the website information that was provided earlier and conduct some research now before you're faced with a problem and find out that it's far too late to course correct. Okay. 
Well, uh, thank you so much, Tricia. Um, do you have any other words of advice or anything you'd like to leave with us? Sure. I, I think the only thing that is consistent is that our laws are ever-changing. To keep your organization in compliance, you must have policies and processes in place to protect your people and the company. It's really important to educate everyone in the organization and help them understand what their role is making uh, in, in making their organization a harassment-free workplace. Okay, great advice. So thank you so much again for, for being here, Tricia. I really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. Okay, well, um, thank you also attendees for being here. Uh, please use the contact information on the screen for any questions. Um, and if you have any other questions that you think of later, um, you can send us those questions. We'll forward them on. Uh, please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you directly from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You'll get it sent automatically. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.